Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the BMO Financial Group conference call on COVID-19, what it means this week. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Uh, thanks, Justina, and thank you all for joining us for the fifth installment of our weekly COVID-19 update with Dr. John White here at BMO Financial Group. I'm Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets, and of course, I'll be joined by Dr. John White uh, from WebMD and two other subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group. Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory will join us, as well as John Hill, who is the Vice President and Strategist with respect to U.S. rates. Before we get to Dr. John White, as we get started, just a quick reminder uh, that I point you to our BMO disclosures via the web link and close at the bottom of the invitation that you have received. Also, given that we are talking about very sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you need medical advice, please directly consult your physician and or a healthcare professional as soon as possible. Dr. John White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD in this role. He leads an effort to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues, kind of like COVID-19 coronavirus. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement for the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. Also, please keep in mind that he is a frontline soldier with respect to what's happening in COVID-19 coronavirus right now as he continues to see patients in the Washington, D.C., in Maryland area. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. John White. Dr. White, go ahead. Thank you, Brian, and thanks everyone for giving me the opportunity to chat today. I am going to send um, some slides or um, infographics following the call with the information that you get. So um, no need to take notes. But I wanted to kind of give you a sense of where we are globally and then in North America. So globally, there's 1.9 million cases of coronavirus with 120,000 deaths. In Canada, there are 25,700 cases with over 780 deaths. Now, I spoke last week, and I mentioned how um, Quebec had the highest number of cases, but Ontario had the highest number of deaths. That's changed a little. Um, so Quebec actually has nearly half of all cases of coronavirus, and it actually has now the most deaths, 12,846 confirmed cases and 360 deaths, whereas Ontario is 7,000 cases with 274 deaths. So Quebec and Ontario, as you would expect based on their population, um, are where most of the cases and deaths are in Canada. In the United States, we have over 582,000 cases with over 23,000 deaths, but New York State alone has 10,000 deaths. So nearly half of all the deaths in the United States are in New York. And then New Jersey uh, is 2,400. So just a reference point, New York is 10,000, and then the next highest is New Jersey at 2,400, and that really drops down. Um, you know, I referenced the site healthdata.org as well as covidtracking.com. Most of those are indicating that we most likely have reached the peak in New York as well as some other states. But the key is that different states are on different curves. So where I am in Virginia, it's not for another two weeks. And this is also a shift, whereas before we were thinking for some other states other than New York, it might be May. And now we're, they really have shifted all towards April. And at least in New York, 
even though there's still a large number of deaths, the rate of hospitalization uh, and the rate of new, crease, of new cases is decreasing. So that's a good sign. It's also the case in Canada as well. Uh, and Canada actually has developed a great website that they've innovated um, at Canada.ca where you can do this interactive map and look at the total number of cases, the total number of new cases, including the number of deaths in a 24-hour cycle. So they really have done a nice job as well, and they most likely have reached the peak uh, as well. I'm also going to send a map that will be relevant of where things are in the different counties in the United States and the different provinces and territories in Canada. And what you'll see is what you would expect, that most of the cases are in population-dense areas. The reason why this is important, when you see the middle of the countries with fewer cases, how is that going to impact reopening the respective countries, especially in the U.S., doing it in waves? And I'm going to come back to that. But I wanted to review a few things. I talked a little last week about the use of facial coverings in the United States as a recommendation, not facial masks. But I have to tell you, uh, the few times I've been at, uh, I, and even on television, I've seen people have been wearing them wrong. So I'm going to send you a great infographic as to how to make your mask and covering and how to wear your covering. Because people have to remember, it has to cover your nose and chin completely. Um, and you only use it once, and then you clean it. You wash your hands after taking it off. You don't touch your, your eyes and your nose. You don't wear it while you're in the house. Um, and you don't wear it while you're in the car uh, because you want to keep uh, the, the facial mask clean. And it's also relevant as we think about that's not to give you a false sense of security. You still have to continue hand washing and physical distancing. And as as Brian mentioned, MD, where we get 80 million page views a month, but we've been getting 3 million page views a day just on coronavirus. And the biggest topic that people are searching, and maybe some of you have searched this as well, is how long does the virus live on surfaces? And I'm going to send an infographic about that as well, because it comes up relating to the shipping boxes, where we believe that at the most it lives a day uh, on cardboard. Uh, it's a fragile virus. You know, we think it lasts just a few hours on paper. It lasts more on metal surfaces and stainless steel. That makes sense. It lasts more on glass. And even though I'll send you how long it lives on the surface, that doesn't mean it's infectious that long. But this will be a good guide for you to think about as you clean, which is with soap and water, disinfect, how you use products like Clorox, etc. So I wanted to include that. But again, even the CDC director yesterday said he believes we're reaching our peak. And you may have seen in the United States that the governors on the East and the West Coast are talking about forming regional PACs to work jointly on how to reopen from the stay-at-home orders. And that's what I think you're going to start seeing, that we're going to see certain regions start to open up with some uh, mitigation efforts that are going to remain in place, but how do we start allowing the economy to come back? And one of the biggest areas of discussion, and I mentioned it before, has been around antibody testing. Um, but the challenge with antibody testing, these are point-of-care testing that are authorized rather than approved by the FDA. So they have a lower standard uh, to meet in terms of diagnostic accuracy. They're qualitative tests. They tell you whether or not you have any antibodies, but we can't necessarily confuse with the presence of antibodies means protection. That's what we think, but we don't know that yet. Um, and there's been talk about we'd issue these certificates of immunity that could allow people to go back to work. Dr. Fauci has talked about that. I'm not sure we're going to go there because I'm not sure yet if our information is reliable, and we're going to have to do much more work on that, and we're going to have to talk about capacity. I told you there were, you know, over, you know, two and a half million tests done in the United States on the diagnostic. That's still pretty low overall. So how are we going to ratchet up our antibody testing? That's what you're going to hear more and more about 
in the next few days and few weeks as an effort to get back to work. And we're going to have to look at the data in terms of how accurate are these tests. The reality is we'd really want to do a quantitative test, do a blood draw, and actually see what type of antibodies you have and how many. But is that practical? I don't know. But the the discussion is really going to focus now onto how do we open up our respective countries. I want to talk a little about quickly about drugs. You've heard a lot about hydroxychloroquine in the past, but don't forget there's been a lot of discussion about remdesivir, which was originally designed for Ebola, and that's been in the news um, recently, just yesterday, about some data about patients being able to come off the ventilator. 80% of patients that get on a ventilator do not survive. just want to point that out. So that could be um, encouraging. There was no control group, as most of these don't have. Um, Northwell Health in New York is actually testing another uh, arthritis drug called Kevzera, um, which is about reducing inflammation. So there's a lot of encouraging data other than just hydroxychloroquine in terms of where we are in treatments. We talked a little bit about convalescent plasma last week. That is labor-intensive. Uh, there's not a lot of funding. There's a big chance of anaphylaxis uh, or a severe allergic reaction, but that's being looked into as well. In terms of, you know, we always like to end with, you know, is there some optimism that we can bring? And what I would say is, as I've said all along, we really have seen that social distancing, uh, physical distancing, and other strategies are working. We most likely have reached our peak in many regions in North America. It doesn't mean every particular county and town or province, but the reality is many of those have reached a peak. And that's an important point because now we're going to talk about how do we modify our mitigation strategies. We're going to shift more to antibody testing. And this is, you know, a great opportunity for us all to talk about immunology and, and, and learn. But we have to do it right. And we really need to push for that. And at the same time, we need to continue diagnostic testing. And we're going to hear about that, but what we're going to be more selective is who do we need to quarantine? Maybe we'll use um, Have there been some missteps along the way? But we're learning from it. We need to focus on, you know, what's in the future. And then we have more than one strategy for treatment. There's some data that talks about there are 70 drugs under different phases of clinical trials, some much further along than others. So it's not about putting all of our eggs in any one basket. So are we starting to see light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, this is probably the, the first call that I, I am starting to feel um, more like we're, we're getting to that point where we're going to have to continue to recognize that this is a serious illness and there are deaths, but how do we also continue mitigation strategies while opening up the economy, getting people back to work into some sense of normalcy because we also know there are a lot of social determinants of health that also impact one's health. And we have to be concerned that people aren't getting treatment for other health conditions, which can have a significant impact on their life and mortality. And with that, I'm going to turn it back to Brian. I'll be happy to, to answer questions when the time allows. Thank you, Dr. White. We're going to keep things rolling and move on to Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Brian. Well, Dr. White just uh, mentioned about uh, uh, the rate of new cases. In fact, with those rates of new COVID-19 cases stabilizing on a nationwide basis in both Canada and the United States, you're hearing much more about the potential reopening of the economy. Uh, of course, uh, you got to keep in mind that sort of new cases stabilizing is not the same thing as new cases decreasing meaningfully, and it's the uh, latter that's going to herald at least a graduated reopening of the economy, and our working assumption has been sort of mid-May uh, for that, so another four weeks, to three to four weeks from now. And in the meantime, uh, the data continue to reveal just how hard uh, the Canadian and U.S. economies are getting hit uh, by COVID-19. Now, on Thursday, we got Canadian uh, uh, jobs numbers, and employment plummeted by just over 1 million in March, 
That's the most uh, on record, and the record dates back to 1976 for that. Uh, and that pushed up the unemployment rate to 7.8% from 5.6. Now, the unemployment obviously would have risen probably into double-digit territory easily, if not for the fact that 600, uh, just under 600,000 uh, 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 people left the, the labor force and therefore didn't get counted uh, in, the, uh, in, in the unemployment rate officially. Uh, that said, that unemployment rate is going to rise. It's going to spike quite sharply, in fact, come, come April. Now, the Canadian government reported as of this Monday that 5.4 million uh, people were receiving uh, payments under the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And even if uh, a chunk of those uh, uh, leave the labor force and aren't counted, we do think the unemployment rate is going to spike, and we're looking for it to hit uh, literally uh, almost double to 14% in April before beginning to ebb. Now, uh, you know, perhaps even more damning on sort of where the economy is right now, uh, other than sort of that uh, uh, unemployment rate, is the hours worked, the aggregate hours worked in March actually plummeted by 15% month on month, which is a, is a huge move and it points to a, a major decline uh, in, uh, in GDP. And in fact, Stats Canada, breaking with tradition, is going to be releasing an interim estimate of uh, uh, both March GDP and Q1 GDP, literally two weeks after the end of the period. Normally, Stats Canada releases the figure two months after the end of the period. Well, they'll be releasing it two weeks to get a good clue or get a sense of just how, how, how much the economy is being affected. Now, in the U.S., we saw the past three weeks alone that uh, 16.8 uh, a million Americans have applied for uh, unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, uh, we'll get more figures this Thursday uh, for the week ending April 11th, and the consensus call there is for another 5.6 million applications. So, in total, you're looking at the past four weeks, 22.4 million Americans applying for unemployment insurance benefits. And that suggests alone that that uh, rise that we saw in the unemployment rate in March already reported to 4.4% from 3.5, with the uh, uh, non-farm payrolls falling by a little over 700,000 and household employment falling by nearly 3 million. That is just going to balloon uh, come April, and we're looking for the unemployment rate uh, in the U.S. Uh, to hit 13% figure uh, come uh, uh, come April. Uh, and we are also beginning to see the weakness in the jobs beginning to filter uh, or be reflected in other areas of the economy. Tomorrow we'll get uh, March reports on retail sales and industrial production. We think retail sales, the headline figure, slipped 9% month on month. That will be the worst reading since uh, the government began tracking retail sales in 1967. And we think uh, industrial production, led by the uh, uh, shuttering of the auto sector, uh, will fall by 4.3% alone in the month, uh, matching the Great Recession in terms of uh, a pace of decline. Now, how bad is this thing going to get at the end of the day? Now, last on last week's call, I mentioned that the uh, the length and depth of the recession would be dictated by uh, how long uh, the stay-at-home orders and the business closures would remain in place. We're kind of using a rule of thumb uh, uh, with uh, 50 to 75 basis points worth of annual GDP for every week the economy is closed. And, of course, we're working on the assumption that come the second half of May, things begin to be relaxed. But, not, you know, there's, there's a wide disparity of views about that. And one of those we got this morning, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, came out with their latest view. And it, it, it is telling because simply because the IMF tends to be a little bit more optimistic about uh, economic growth generally. But they're looking for the global economy to contract 3% this year, uh, uh, and which is the uh, worst than the Great Recession and uh, the worst since the Great Depression. Now, they are looking for the economy to rebound 5.8%, the global economy, uh, next year. That's all led by the developing and emerging markets. Uh, the advanced economies, uh, uh, the IMF believes, will not be able to fully recover next year, particularly the U.S. They're looking for a 5.9% decline with a 4.7% uh, rebound uh, in 2021. For the record, we're uh, 4% decline this year and a 6% rebound. And in Canada, they're looking. The IMF is looking for a 6.2% decline, followed by a 4.2% rebound. And we're minus 4.5, and then a positive 6.5 in terms of our own projections. So where we're very different is, of course, the depth of that uh, uh, downturn, but also the, the, the robustness of the rebound. And uh, the IMF believes that unemployment rates will remain high, but 
we happen to believe that the stimulus that's been put in place is all designed to try to make the rebound as robust as possible. And we saw on Saturday that the Canadian government passed the uh, Canada Emergency Wage Benefit uh, uh, Subsidy, uh, $73 billion injected uh, into uh, small businesses. Uh, and there's talk, you know, about further stimulus measures, particularly for the energy sector and also for the self-employed. And tomorrow we get the Bank of Canada's policy announcement. They haven't done much over the last few weeks, so maybe we'll get something uh, from them as well uh, in the U.S., uh, after three rounds of fiscal stimulus, it looks like a fourth round is taking shape pretty quickly with the Democrats and Republicans in the Senate on board, along with the administration. They're talking about another $250 billion for small businesses, another $250 billion for state and local governments and hospitals, and this thing could get through the Senate as early as this Thursday. And, of course, on Friday... We saw the Fed introduce a whole host of new lending measures and expanding others that they believe could contribute up to an expansion of uh, uh, total credit in the economy, upwards of $2.3 trillion, which seems to be a really good segue to uh, uh, introduce my colleague, John Hill, who will talk specifically about the Fed measures and some other issues in, uh, in the market. John? Thanks, Michael. It's certainly been one of the more consequential and dramatic several weeks that we'll frankly ever see in our careers, if not lifetimes. And one way that I've been trying to characterize the Fed responses is by different playbooks. So if we go back even six weeks, you know, two months, the Fed's playbook in response to a recession was cut rates to zero, deploy forward guidance that rates are going to stay at zero for an extended period, and in all certainty, launch another quantitative easing program. Check, check, and check. They've done all three. The next round would be to relaunch several of the 2008 crisis era facilities. These are things that are largely designed to improve market functioning or improve bridge financing to distressed assets. The Fed has gone ahead and rolled that out as well. The What's new this time around is because the scale of this shock is so unforeseen and particularly unprecedented, the scale of the monetary response needs to be similarly aggressive. So what we've seen is the Fed expand not just beyond their traditional U.S. Treasuries or agency MBS, which have a uh, federal government backing, but also into non-traditional assets. In particular, the move into corporate bonds, as well as some municipal debt. This should really help to try to improve market functioning and liquidity in as many different pockets of the financial markets as possible. The reality is, although this is not a monetary phenomenon, the central bank does have a huge amount of power and ammunition in order to try to push back on these issues. One way that I can think about this, and I think this is actually quite remarkable, if we look at the bottom in equities from late March they are now 30% or so higher from the trough. Ten-year Treasury yields, on the other hand, are actually lower than they were when equity bottomed. And what that really speaks to me is the aggressiveness and scale of the Fed's response have been sufficient to keep interest rates low, which helps lower borrowing costs, ease financial conditions for corporates, for households, and try to stimulate the economy going forward. Of course, this process is not immediate. It is not one for one. Mortgage rates are still artificially high and will probably come down over time. And more particularly, some of the corporate or even Fed facilities that they've announced haven't really started rolling out. The Fed indicated that they'll start buying commercial paper, for example. That facility was announced, you know, call it 20, 25 days ago. But in order to get the operations and the risk management and everything that goes with funding a new $300 book, it's taken up until this morning to actually get it off the table. Similarly, the corporate bond purchases, although that's a very positive forward signal, that flow hasn't necessarily started as of yet. So when I look forward in terms of the Fed's actions impacts on the Treasury market, on the bond market, or in general financial conditions, we still could see a substantial flow-driven stimulative impact. Um, one other final thing that I think I would note is I've talked a lot about the Fed here, but Michael was correct in that the scale of the fiscal response has also been extremely dramatic in the order of a few trillion dollars. 
And that's just so far, it's likely that that will expand. What that equates to in the treasury market is a huge increase in issuance. So all else equal, your traditional way of thinking about supply and demand is this should put upward pressure on rates. The reality, though, is that's only partially true. In other words, it's a matter of basis points, not a percent or two. So when I think of the, you know, $1 trillion, $2 trillion deficits that the U.S. is going to face over the next few quarters, the Treasury market is well positioned in order to handle that, uh, handle that issuance. One of the reasons is that where Treasury has decided to issue is very front-end focused. So we're seeing a huge amount of Treasury bills, cash management bills, which are these kind of non-benchmark Treasury bills that they issue on occasion. That is absorbing the brunt of the issuance. And so when we've seen a huge flow into government money market funds, well, that increased supply of cash is being met with an increased supply of collateral via these bill issuances. You're not seeing any dislocations in the Treasury market. You put all that together, and it makes sense somewhat that 10-year yields are at 75 basis points right now. We still think that there is a possibility that rates go a little bit higher, over 1% at some point in the coming months, but it's going to be a very, very long time until we see 2% 10-year yields again. The reality is that the Fed is buying you know, $30 billion of treasuries a day that more than offsets any uh, bearish or sell-off that you get in fixed income in response to the Treasury issuance and should continue to put downward pressure on rates for a long time going forward. At the end of the day, rates are low because the Fed has put rates low. We expect rates to stay low for a very long time, and we have additional downward pressure on interest rates from an ongoing flight to quality, dismal economic outlook, to say nothing of an unprecedented speed of quantitative easing. So in terms of where I think we're going from here, well, the Fed's not out of ammunition. There are other policy tools that they could employ. Um, this could range from everything from an expanded municipal bond buying program to something that would be kind of akin to yield curve control. Basically, the Fed would come out and say, we're not going to let two-year yields go above 25 basis points or something. That policy has been tossed around in the past. Um, what I do expect, though, is that we're going to stay at low interest rates for a very long time. Quantitative easing is going to be on the table for an extended period, and the central bank is going to be in absolutely no rush to pull back a lot of their stimulus. Thank you, John. I really appreciate that. Before uh, we provide our formal comments with respect to what's happening in terms of uh, both the Canadian and U.S. stock markets, I'm going to hand the ball back to Justina, and she's going to give the caller some uh, help in terms of queuing up for questions. Justina? Thank you. We'll now take questions from the telephone lines. In order to ask a question, please leave your name and company. If you have a question and using a speakerphone, please hit your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while the participants register. Thank you for your patience. Thanks, Justine. In terms of investment strategy and how we're looking at the Canadian and U.S. stock markets, I guess the best way to kind of go about this is, is really review the three main questions that we're receiving from clients around the world. Number one, Brian, has the bottom been put in place? We would say yes. On March 23rd, we wrote a piece that detailed our three scenarios for the U.S. market, and then the next day we did the same thing for the Canadian market. We also, at that time, suspended our year-end price targets uh, for the S&P 500 and the TSX and moved them into a rolling 12-month target. Why did we do that? When investors buy things, they don't buy things for nine months. They buy things for at least a year or 18 months. And given the fact that forecasts, especially for the first quarter, are quite frankly in flux, uh, we don't feel comfortable in terms of looking at things from a nine-month basis. As such, we do believe, though, as we said in that report, that the stock market, we said this in writing, would rally 40 to 50% from those lows. We are in an unprecedented time. There is no template for what's happening right now, given the behavioral science and psychology going on with markets and really being driven by the health issues, not fundamental or economic issues, but the health issues that impact everyone 
on a daily basis, not only personally, but professionally as well. Given that fear of the unknown, we have these unprecedented down days. And as such, when markets begin to recover, we really believe that we would see these unprecedented up days, which really leads us to point number two on what we're uh, really being asked right now. Brian, why is the market going up when we have bad economic or bad fundamental news? Case in point, some of the banks came out today with earnings. And last week, we had the news with respect to not only unemployment, but what the Fed was doing. Why was the market going up? The way that we'd like to explain this is, and it dovetails into what I said in the first point, investors didn't really know how to put their arms around uh, what was happening with COVID-19 and coronavirus. We all tried to play um, kind of uh, our makeshift epidemiologist or, or doctor. We all kind of wanted to figure out our own and try to explain it to ourselves where our jobs are in the investment industry to really focus on economics and fundamentals in earnings, in themes, in stocks, in PE levels, and all of these things that we're more accustomed to. Now that the, we're starting to see less negative news on COVID-19, second derivative, less negative news, now we're starting to transition back into doing what we're good at, analyzing that data. And we know how to deal with bad economic news and bad fundamentals. And the market is beginning to work through those things that's why we believe the market has begun to rally. Third and final question that really is dominating the majority of our calls and queries from clients are, how do the banks look, Brian? Is this 2008-2009 again with respect to what happened during the Great Recession? We would say categorically, no, this is not 2008-2009 in terms of the bank condition. Remember, we saw that coming in financial services, this wave in 2007, 2008, with respect to what happened with credit and financials and banks. We didn't see this coming. We didn't know how to deal with this in terms of COVID-19 this time around. And oh, by the way, the banks from our lens, from our analyst lens, both in the United States and Canada, are way better capitalized with respect to balance sheet strength this time around relative to 2008, 2009. That is why part and parcel with respect to how we're looking at banks and investment strategy, both in Canada and the United States, we love the big banks in particular that have this balance sheet strength and very strong capital measures and discipline now relative to 2008 and 2009. And with that, I'll hand the ball back to Justina and see if we have some questions queued up. Thank you. Once again, please press star one on your telephone keypad if you have a question. There are no questions at this time. Okay, I guess uh, the first question that I'll lobby up there is to Michael Gregory. And, Michael, if you could editorialize a little bit your feelings in terms of talking to clients and people with them asking you particularly, what's the shape of the recovery? Is it a V? Is it L? Is it, is it a U? How do you counter that question when you are receive that from clients? Sure. It's funny. It's, it's all about the letters, right? The L meaning no recovery, a V, that sharp recovery, uh, uh, the U, of course, a, a more gradual but still a decent recovery. And, of course, another one in the uh, letter in there, Brian, is it's the W where we do get a, a sharp recovery, but then, uh, unfortunately, another wave of uh, uh, COVID uh, uh, infections and, therefore, uh, uh, causing another downturn. Uh, so, uh, you know, one thing to sort of keep in mind here is, is, uh, the, uh, the, the extent to which we do get a recovery, uh, again, is, is part and function how long we, we stay closed for, uh, and, uh, the, the amount of stimulus and the amount of measures that, uh, the governments and central banks put in to ensure that when things start to open up, uh, there's as many, uh, you know, businesses and households that, 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 that are in financial position enough to start taking advantage of improving conditions. Now, in terms of the growth rates, we are going to get some stellar-looking numbers. There's no question about it. Uh, I mean, I'll give you a quick example, Brian. If you think about a, uh, a restaurant right now that is doing takeout only, 20% of activity for the sake of argument, the government says or the state or the province says as of uh, uh, point X, you can now uh, – bring out, uh, open up 50% of your tables and to space them out a little bit, a little bit of a graduated opening. Well, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm working at sort of 60% of my volume from 20%. Well, that's a 200% growth rate from where I was before. So the numbers look pretty strong, but I'm still below where I was before. And that's the other aspect of the recovery, which is a little bit more unsettling, a little bit unnerving, is yes, we will get a V-shape in terms of growth and in terms of activity as well. But when do we get back to where we were before? 
uh, I think of a V-shaped recovery as really getting back very quickly to the level of activity we were before. And, and quite frankly, it doesn't seem that that's going to happen as readily. Uh, I do think from a level of activity perspective, it's going to be, you know, somewhere between a U and a V in terms of where, where we get back. Uh, and uh, we're thinking sometime into next year, uh, uh, you know, before we start seeing that level back to where we were before. And as I mentioned in, in my, uh, uh, my commentary earlier, uh, a certain institution like the IMF, for example, doesn't even believe that uh, Canada and the United States and most of the advanced world will get back to where they were before on average by next year. So, so again, uh, you know, we will get a recovery. Uh, and growth rates are going to look stellar. Uh, uh, but in terms of the actual level of activity, when we start, you know, seeing uh, concerts again and, and full airplanes and full cruise ships and things like that, that's going to take a little bit longer to get back. Thanks, Michael. Justina, any questions so far from the audience? Once again, please press star one on your telephone keypad if you have a question. No questions at this time. Okay, I guess one more question for Dr. White. In terms of wearing facial coverings, uh, what is your stance on that? And in particular, there's been a lot of talk with respect to elder care facilities uh, in terms of facial coverings as well. Do you have anything else that you could add with respect to that subject? Sure. You know, and I think there's the reality. If we didn't have a global shortage of facial masks, we would be talking masks. But everyone can't have one, and we need to save them for the first um, line responders and for the medical community. So the reason why we're saying facial coverings, and again, it really has to be used properly, is this idea that there's asymptomatic shedding of the virus, meaning we don't yet have symptoms, but we're coughing or sneezing, we're rubbing our nose and we're touching things, and we're potentially exposing other people. So I think what the CDC clarified is it's wearing those facial coverings at times when you're around larger populations. So that's why I'm like in the car, in the house, you don't need to wear it. Um, a nursing home is different because those folks are already at increased risk. It's always an evaluation of risk versus benefit, just as in medicine, as in economics. So patients that are, are sick and older with chronic disease are at increased risk. And you might be spreading the virus before you have symptoms. So it's wise to wear a facial covering in those settings. If we had antibody testing and it was done properly, we might be able to know that if you're immune, then you're not going to shed. The other areas where we're saying it, grocery stores can be busy. Pharmacies going to be busy. And I'm going to be honest. I think as the weather continues to get warmer and folks are seeing some encouraging news, we don't want them to let up on things, and that could be a concern. People are going to be out and about more, and you really want to, you know, based on the local infection rates of your community and where you're going, to consider wearing the masks. And it's a good idea to check online to make sure you're making it properly, wearing it properly, because you also don't want a false sense of security. You don't want to be readjusting, because when you're readjusting, you're touching your face. Um, you don't want to be touching your eyes. So it, it, it's not all intuitive. You want to take a little bit of work to make it properly, wear it properly, and then use it at the right times. Nursing homes is a great way, other locations, but just if you're walking by yourself outside for a walk and not coming into contact, it, it's probably not useful in that setting. Thanks, Dr. White. We're going to try this one more time. Justina, we have time for one more question. Thank you. We have a question from Asterios Satrazemis. Please state your company name and go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you. Uh, guys, I'm from United Site Services. We're the uh, largest provider of uh, temporary site solutions in the U.S. And my question, first of all, great call. My question is, I'm trying to look at, for our business, we're seeing currently an uptick in activity just from crisis response, but, you know, further out into the second half of the year and into the first half of the year, uh, thinking through the impacts to construction activity and the downturn that I think we'll see in new starts. That's one. And coupled with that, if you think about the S&P right now at a level that was June of last year, how, how do we reconcile that when you think about 
earnings hits that companies are taking and if at 2800 that's the forward look for 12 months of earnings it does give a sense that it's a bit lofty when you think about the hit many companies are going to take which is sort of back to the first part of my question about second half first half impacts to the real economy and, and demand just try and reconcile that for me in your guys view Great question. I'll handle the uh, the second part with respect to where the markets are, and maybe Michael can dovetail in terms of second half activity, especially with respect to uh, construction uh, and the like. You know, per my uh, per my comment, that's why looking at the current quarter is so difficult because you know zero percent of zero is zero, and when you have revenues drop as much as they have been or going to. Uh, it's going to be uh, have put real pressure with respect to what the E is in terms of a PE ratio of a numerator denominator. The question on the denominator is, you know, what happens near term? If if I go back in my experience of, of 30 years and we've had these sh- uh, these types of shocks before, clearly we haven't had this type of shock before. Uh, but you know, the 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 wherewithal I, I think of of the consumer side of things is really going to be a driver that I think people and Michael alleviated this a little bit. Uh, in terms of the growth on the restaurant side and what, how numbers are going to be unbelievable on the recovery, just like they're going to be unbelievable on the downside here. So I think the wherewithal the U.S. consumer is going to get through this. But I, I think the other thing you have to be aware of with respect to, you know, with the S&P 500 and, and what it provides investors relative to other areas of the world is there's been so much talk about um, limiting dividends and buybacks and things like that. But, you know, equity income is becoming a very, very important quality and stable type of, of asset that the S&P 500 actually provides relative to the rest of the world. That's number one. Number two, we continue to believe that assets from around the world, from emerging markets and other developed markets, are going to come back to North America that will benefit both Canada and the United States just in terms of stability of operations. Number three, in terms of this whole supply chain issue and how we've already started to see repatriation of, of things coming back to North America, not only the United States, but Canada uh, there's going to be time and sale type of, of inventory issues that will actually provide more stability to earnings going forward. The other thing, too, you have to lastly think about this is that in the United States, and this is a great way to segue into um, into what Michael uh, could say as well, in the United States especially, but also Canada, we haven't had a very strong and sustainable CapEx cycle uh, for over 20 years. That means the age of equipment in, in America is at all-time highs, and although we've become – uh, much more technology-driven, uh, we still need to replace some of the old manufacturing uh, equipment and the like that we haven't seen for a long time. So I actually think that coming out of this, especially given where the stimulus has come in and where interest rates are, we could see a CapEx boom heading into 2021 that I think could ultimately really drive growth as well. So Again, I think we, we are still standing behind our call that markets are going to rally 40 to 50% from the lows. We've already seen a nice rally of 25 to 30%. I think we have more to go, uh, just because I do think money's going to come back, uh, to the United States and Canada. With that, I'll hand the ball off to Michael and see if he has anything else to add. Uh, thanks, Brian. Just very quickly on, on the, on the construction side specifically, while, while I do agree with Brian that on sort of on the CapEx side, on the equipment side, particularly on the tech side, uh, I think that's going to be a, a pretty strong rebound. And if anything, I think a lot of companies discovered, uh, where they're woefully inadequate in certain aspects of the tech side. So I, I think we're going to, uh, see a bit of a pickup from that. But, but let's face it, a lot of businesses aren't going to, uh, aren't going to make it through, uh, uh, this crisis. And, and therefore, you know, that, that will act as a bit of a damper on the commercial real estate side, uh, no doubt, and, and therefore on, on the non-residential construction uh, outlook uh, and, uh, and even on the residential side. Uh, you know, going into this downturn, the fundamentals were pretty solid in terms of uh, a relatively lean supply of, of homes available for sale, uh, sturdy job growth, uh, high levels of confidence, relatively low borrowing costs, all of the sort of ingredients for, uh, you know, sustained uh, uh, growth on, on, non, on the residential construction side. But we're going to come out of this probably with, uh, you know, consumers being a little more shell-shocked. Uh, it may take a, a little longer for confidence to come back, uh, even if the stock market does come back. And a lot of it may be dictated by the job front. And in fact, where you see the big discrepancies among forecasters is, you know, what, what what's going to happen on that job front. 
uh, and, and that, of course, is tied to how many of those businesses I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, you know, either do not hire as many people uh, as they had, uh, you know, b- b- before the, the downturn or, or, or even still around. Uh, and, and so that, that, that's, that's the big question mark. And, and so I do think at a minimum you're going to see that uncertainty about the employment outlook to be a bit of a, a, a drag on, on confidence and, and add to a little bit more caution. So, so I do think, you know, while we will get a rebound in, in housing activity, uh, um, and uh, I do think it's, it's not going to be where we would have been otherwise, and and uh, and particular also on the uh, the, uh, the non-resident side. So overall, uh, a, a more uh, a so, uh, sober outlook for uh, for uh, construction spending. Brian, thanks, Michael. With that, Justina, do we have anything else from the field? We do have uh, one more question from Yum Gabon from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yeah, is that okay if I ask a question, Brian, since I'm from BMO? Yes, please. Oh, Guillaume, bonjour. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Uh, This is a question for John White. Uh, Good morning, uh, doctor. What do you think is required uh, for world government, their, their scientific advisors, or the hospital teams uh, to adopt uh, treatments in the absence of a control group. Uh, you referred, for example, to the latest data from uh, Gilead, which had no control and, and which was uh, promising. But there is also a, a study that came out uh, on Friday uh, on uh, hydroxychloroquine in France from the most mm-hmm. prestigious infectious hospital, which shows that there is only a 0.5% mortality rate on a total of 1,061 patients treated. Uh, mm-hmm. The outcome seems very good. So what is required? A peer review? I think this hospital has not sure. yet launched the peer review. Yeah, that's my question. Yeah. And I'm also going to send an article around. There is some data that we're seeing in the United States that perhaps we're not treating the condition properly. We're treating it more as an acute respiratory distress syndrome with some ventilator centers, and maybe it's really more of a high-altitude pulmonary edema type of illness that we need to treat differently. So that's actually one element which uh, significantly impacts treatment as well. And you are correct about, um, you know, some of the latest data. And, and I'm going to be sharing an interview that I'm doing with Janet Woodcock on Thursday of this week, the center director at FDA. And what she will talk about is, and, and other folks mentioned this as well, even in the setting of a pandemic, an epidemic, it's even more important to do appropriate clinical trials. doesn't mean that everything has to be a 20,000 randomized controlled trial, but we do need some controls. That's what makes the data, even as you mentioned, the Gilead data uh, and remdesivir data, a bit challenging to interpret. There are a lot of co-variables. There is a, a lot of other issues. So there's the political decision that folks want to be doing something and getting something out, but there's an opportunity cost for using the wrong drug and perhaps not using another. So I think you're going to see more discussion around controlled trials, and I will tell you here in the United States, those that are being used under emergency use authorization. There's lots of clinical trials going underway that are controlled, some real-world evidence. So I think you're going to see that more and more of that discussion in the scientific community. We need controlled trials. The remdesivir trial, some of the others are encouraging, but we can't just throw peer review and uh, the scientific process out the door because we're trying to move quickly. So I think we're going to circle back to that, that now we're not deluged by, um, you know, a continuing increase, that we need to focus on what works. And I will tell you as a former regulator, when it comes to that time for approval, they're going to look for that data. And, and, and also, I want, I, I have just uh, one follow-up, if that's okay. Uh, we are talking about a virus. So uh, if the virus becomes undetectable, does it mm-hmm. really require a control group? Probably yes, because most of the patients are not severe. Right. I, I think you're right. I think we still have to have that control group. You know, we have a scientific process, and we do have to follow it. Otherwise, we could get be getting spurious information that it's not accurate, and then what do we do? So, and those are 
going underway. I think what we're seeing now is some, you know, early data for trials that were started a while ago that didn't have the control just because they're trying to get information out there. But this type of information actually should be guiding us to do the more appropriate trial. And, and there are some underway as well. So it's not as if we don't have any control. But, but that's the whole purpose, you know, of a, a control group. And there's different strategies to do that as well. They all don't have to be, as I said, these, you know, 20,000, you know, randomized placebo control because you could make the argument that a placebo is, is unethical, you know, to do in this setting. But there's other ways uh, to, to control a trial, and I think you're going to see more pressure on that from the scientific community because we want to get the info right. We don't rely on hunches. Thanks, Dr. White. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Just a reminder, please contact your BMO Relationship Manager uh, and visit our webpage at bmocm.com. Please listen to our COVID-19 podcast. We'll also be publishing something under our banner uh, with a review. Lastly, Dr. White is providing his slides to that site, so please take a look. We look forward to speaking to you very soon. Please be safe and well, and thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.